I'm going to read uh, Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and a bullock for the sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. And gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put upon him the coat and girded him with the girdle and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod upon him. And he girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. And he put the breastplate upon him. Also, he put the breastplate. He put in the breastplate the urim and the thummim. And he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. And he poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and put coats upon them and girded them with girdles, and he put bonnets upon them as the Lord commanded Moses. You may be seated. God bless you. I'd like to start uh, with a couple questions to a couple individuals here. If you were in sixth grade at Weavertown School this past year, I'd like you to stand up. Those of you who were in sixth grade last year at Weavertown School. So I think I see three of you here, four, four of you here. Um, somebody tell me where you went on your school trip, your field trip at the end of the year. Philadelphia, okay. Somebody tell me what you saw in Philadelphia. Franklin Institute? Something else? Anything else? The Liberty Bell, okay. I was about ready thinking that you spent all your day at Franklin Institute. Do any of you know what was written, what is written on the Liberty Bell? Do, do any of you remember that? Okay, you may sit down. I'll take the pressure off of you. Can anybody tell me what is written on the Liberty Bell? I'm not sure if that's on it. There is a verse from the Bible written on the Liberty Bell. The verse says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. So I found it interesting that there's a verse from the Bible on one of America's uh, favorite emblems. And I might mention that a little, bit, a little bit later. It has been said that preaching a sermon is the closest that a man will ever come to having a baby. 
Now, maybe you think that's a strange statement. Uh, let me explain it a little bit. There are some interesting comparisons. They both start with conception. A sermon begins when an idea is planted. And then there's a period of development. As that idea develops, begins to take shape, grows, and forms. There's often a period of anxiety and fear and anticipation that precedes the time of delivery. And then there's the climax, the delivery of the sermon when it's presented to the public. And then the delivery is sometimes followed by exhaustion or maybe even depression, which you could compare to the baby blues. Now, why do I say that? The sermon today was conceived on February 5th of this year when Aaron Stoltzfus had a topic after Sunday school here at church. And he ended the topic with the words, I'll let you think more about it. Well, I've been thinking. And those thoughts uh, that were planted on that day uh, gradually developed into the sermon for this morning. Can someone here tell me what Aaron talked about in that topic back in February? What book of the Bible he talked about? He referred to it as the death of Bible reading plans. Someone need to tell me what the book was. Yeah, it was Leviticus. So you might still have your Bibles open to Leviticus. And um, I, if I remember right, I think Aaron may have mentioned that he hasn't heard many sermons from Leviticus here at Weavertown, and perhaps that was kind of what uh, stimulated my thinking somewhat. I do have records of all the sermons since I was ordained, so I checked back through the records. And in the last 11 years, there were two records, or two sermons here at Weavertown that used a text from Leviticus. One was in August of 2015. Norman Kaufman preached a sermon with the title, The Two Aarons. And it was preached at Aaron Lapp's retirement service. And then a bit later, John, you preached a message uh, based on Leviticus 25, or using that as a text, and the title was Order in the Workplace. There's a, uh, a well-known preacher, um, American preacher, that occasionally I listen to some of his sermons online. And he is known as an expository preacher, a preacher who doesn't necessarily teach, uh, preach topical sermons, but he takes a passage of scripture and preaches through that passage. And you can go online and find all of his sermons arranged according to the passage from the Bible. So I checked him out and I looked for his sermons from Leviticus over the past 40 years of his ministry and found not one. So I guess Weavertown has done a little bit better than that. I'd like to dive into the book of Leviticus this morning as we look at this uh, sermon, Holy Unto the Lord. First of all, let's look at the context of the book in the biblical timeline. I'd like uh, one of the children that are sitting with your parents this morning to tell me what is the first book in the Bible? Somebody call it out. The first book of the Bible. 
Genesis, right. Genesis is known as the book of beginnings. It tells us about creation. It tells us the beginning of many things. And we find the book of Genesis to be an interesting book. We believe it. We believe the book of Genesis. It shows us the origins, including the origin of sin and the fall of man. And from the book of Genesis, which we enjoy reading, we recognize our need to be saved from sin. Well, the second book of the Bible is Exodus, which explains deliverance from bondage. The children of Israel were living in bondage in Egypt, and the focus of Egypt is their deliverance from that bondage. We find this to be an interesting book. We enjoy reading the account that we find in Exodus. We recognize our need for deliverance from the bondage of sin. And we recognize Christ as our Passover lamb. So the book of Genesis, the origin of sin, we believe that. We recognize that. Exodus, deliverance from sin. Well, Leviticus follows right after that in a normal sequence. And the focus is, after we are delivered from sin, a call to a life of separation unto God and holy living. And suddenly, when we get to the book of Leviticus, we lose interest. We find it a boring book. As I mentioned earlier, someone has called it the death of Bible reading plans. People start reading through the Bible, they get to Leviticus, they get bogged down. I find it interesting that even in our Sunday school lesson plan, we have portions from Genesis and Exodus, but nothing from Leviticus. Now, I'm not finding fault with that. I'm not sure that I would have done it any differently. I, I understand that. But why is it that we recognize sin in Genesis, we rejoice in deliverance in Exodus, but we resist the holiness and the separation that is taught in the book of Leviticus. I was thinking a lot about that over recent weeks. We call Leviticus boring. We call it inapplicable. It's not pertinent for us today, we say. Is that because we don't like this idea of holy living? Is that as it should be? I don't think so. You see, God has a plan for us after salvation, after the book of Exodus, after deliverance from bondage. He still has a plan for our lives. And that plan is a plan of holy living. You see, life is not only about recognizing we are sinners, saying a prayer, and getting baptized, and then living as we please. That is not all that there is to life. God has ex expectations for how his people live. He made it very clear in the, book of or in the book of Leviticus that he has expectations. And you say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Well, God made it clear in the New Testament as well that he has expectations. We are called to live a life of holiness, separated unto him. The first word in the book of 
Leviticus is a very interesting word for a book to start with. It starts with the word and. Now, if I recall right, I was taught in English class to not begin a sentence with the word and because an and is a conjunction that, that combines two things. So you need something before the word and. Well, there is something before the word and. The book of, of Leviticus is a continuation from the book of Exodus. It continues. So there's what happens in Exodus and. We are delivered from sin and we are called onto holiness. It is the expected and normal progression. We just go right from the deliverance into the uh, holiness to which God is calling us. It's the expected and normal progression. So I would say that the teaching of Levit Leviticus is something for us to consider. Yeah, there's a lot of ceremonies and so forth that have been fulfilled in Christ, but they are given to us for a reason and they have value. Well, let's move on and look at the name of the book. The name of the book in English is Leviticus, and that simply means pertaining to the Levites. We get this name from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was something that the Jews used in the time of Jesus. It was simply a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's where the word Leviticus comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So Leviticus simply means pertaining to the Levites. And that's significant. We might ask, well, who cares about the Levites? That was then. I don't even know any Levites. But there's significance in that. The Levites were God's special possession. And we see that in num uh, numerous verses. I have uh, one of them projected here for you, Numbers 3.12, God says, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. You see, the Levites are gods. They belong to God because God claimed them for his own. That was his right. He had the right to do that. So because of that, the Levites did not do everything that everyone else did. Also, the Levites did some things that other people did not do. They belonged to God. They needed to do what God wanted them to do because they were his. The Levites were God's special possession. So who is God's special possession today? Does he have a special possession today? Or well, those who believe and follow him. Believers are God's special possession this is taught in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So I say this is, um, is significant this book that is pertaining to the Levites because the Levites belong to God. We as believers belong to God. So there are a lot of similarities here. A lot of things that are similar. Believers 
today do not do everything that everyone else does. And there are some things that believers do that other people don't do. Why? Because we are God's. We need to do what he wants us to do. We belong to God. Now, how does that make you feel? The fact that you belong to God. The fact that you really don't belong to yourself. Is that a disappointment? Teenagers may look forward to reaching a certain age, whether it's 18 or 21, or they may look forward to moving out so that they can be on their own, do what they want to do, call their own shots. Does the fact that as a committed Christian, you will never be on your own, does that disappoint you? Does it leave you feeling slighted? Other people can call their shots in their lives, but you can't because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Well, let me ask you this. Who would you rather belong to? Certainly not to the master of this world. And even, would you really want to belong to yourself? Do you trust your own judgment more than you trust God's judgment and your values? So belonging to God is a great honor, and it's an identity that we should carry with delight and passion. And it's something that we, it should be our lifelong goal to be a student of the question, how can I please him to whom I belong? And that is done by living a life of holiness, which is um, exemplified in the book of Leviticus. So the Levites were God's special possession. Believers today are God's special possession. And the point is this. Much that applied to the Levites in the Old Testament also applies to us as believers today. And there's a few examples of that. You know, people ask questions that they find confusing. You know, so we teach that we should not go to war. What, what about in the Old Testament? There was all kinds of warfare that was, that was um, condoned by God. It was actually, um, God told people they should get involved. So how do we justify that? Well, if you look at that closely, the Levites, God's special possession, did not go to war. So it only makes sense that God's people today do not go to war. The Levites in the Old Testament did not divorce and remarry. It only makes sense that the same applies to God's people today, and there's many other examples. Some of you may remember about seven years ago, I preached uh, two sermons on this subject, comparing the Levites in the Old Testament to the believers today. So that fact, I think, should make the book that pertains to the Levites, Leviticus, of special interest to us. I'd like to look furthermore at the um, Hebrew name, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm sure it would not be correct anyway, but that name means, it was the Hebrew name for Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible, the third book of the Bible, that's the name that it was given, and it was simply taken from the first, what I understand was one word in the Hebrew Bible, the first word in the book. In the English, it's three words, and he called, or in, uh, in our version, and the Lord called. So I think that is also significant. God is calling his people today to holy living. So the book of Leviticus is a book of calling. The book of Exodus 
near the beginning starts out with God calling Moses. And the book of Leviticus also says he called Moses. But more than that, he's calling all of his people to live a life of holiness. Let's move on to three observations about Leviticus, just three brief observations. Most of the book of Leviticus is a direct quote from God. God speaking to his people and just simply being relayed. Many of your Bibles in the New Testament have the words of Jesus written in red. If our Bibles in the Old Testament would have the words of God written in red, most of Leviticus would be printed in red. Most of the book is quoting God. So I I just remind you of that to say, let's be careful about the comments we make about the book of Leviticus, because it's God's message to his people. So let's not pass it off too quickly. I'm sure God said what he did for a reason. And although, like I said before, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, there are many applications and lessons for us today. So that's one observation. Most of the Bible is quoting God. Leviticus, or excuse me, most of Leviticus was quoting God. Number two, Leviticus is popular with New Testament writers. This book is referred to or quoted more than 100 times in the New Testament. So the New Testament writers were obviously very familiar with this book. And also, I referred to before just an item of interest, the book of Leviticus is even quoted on the Liberty Bell. Leviticus 25.10, these words are on the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Now, our founding fathers had political liberty in mind. They may have taken this verse out of context a bit. The context here has to do with um, the year of Jubilee and so forth. Uh, The application as well could be spiritual liberty. We as believers need to proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Moving on to the fourth main category, I'd like to look at three historical events recorded in Leviticus. Now, I already mentioned that um, the book of Leviticus is not the easiest to read. And one of the reasons for that, the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, are largely recording historical events. They are recording events. It's history. Or you might use the word story. They tell stories. They provide interesting reading because of the story format. So as you read the books of Genesis and much of Exodus, even if you don't dig in to the deeper meaning within these stories, you can still find the stories themselves to be of interest. Enjoy reading the books for the stories themselves. And this is where the book of Leviticus takes a significant turn. There is very little history recorded in the book of Leviticus. The majority of the book is detailed instruction. And that's probably one reason why a lot of people lose interest. In fact, there are only three historical events recorded in this entire book. And we will take a look at them. The first one is the um, passage that Glenn read for um, 
a text here before the sermon, which is the anointing and consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests. And this event takes two chapters. It's in chapters 8 and 9. Uh, the beginning of chapter 8 is the anointing, but then there's uh, quite a bit of description of the sacrifices that were made as they were consecrated to God's service. And I'm, I'm planning, or I'd like to point out several observations here from this account, this historical moment that was recorded. Several observations. So if you have your Bibles open yet to Leviticus 8, you can look at some of these. The first observation is our consecration to a life of holiness should be a public affair. It should be known to the public. In verses 3 and 4, Moses was told by God to gather all the congregation together onto the door of the tabernacle. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and the assembly was gathered together. Now notice that this was not only the priests that were gathered. It was not only the Levites representing the believers of today. It was the entire assembly which would represent our society, today's society. They were all gathered together to watch what was taking place here. So this consecration to holiness is not something that was done in secret. It was not a private affair. It was something that, basically speaking, the world observed and was made aware of. Our holiness should be evident to all. It's not a Sunday morning affair. In our Sunday school class this morning, we had a discussion. Um, you know, how do you live in light or how do you serve the Lord? It's not a matter of giving him 10% of our money or 10% of our time. It's a matter of giving him all of our time. Going to work should be serving the Lord. And there is no one that should have any question but that we are living a life of holiness. It should be obvious within our homes, to our families. It should be obvious in our workplace, to our employers, to our employees, whichever the case should be, to our fellow employees. It should be obvious that we are living a life of holiness. It should be obvious when we go to school that we are living a life of holiness. It should be obvious to our business clients, to our neighbors, to everybody. Our consecration to God should be evident to all. Second observation here, our consecration to life of holiness will affect our appearance. And as you read on there, uh, verses um, 6 through 9, and I think verse 18, or 13 here, it talks about the apparel of the priests that they were given. And I would just simply say, in relation to that, that a consecrated person will be noticeably different from those around him. You will stand out. You will look different. Embrace that. Do not try to blend in with those around you. You're losing your holy distinction if you do. Furthermore, personal consecration is necessary for effective ministry to others. And this is found in chapter 9 as we go through this. As you look at verse eight, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, you notice that Aaron... It says, went on to the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. So first of all, he offered an offering 
for himself. And then down in verse 15, he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was a sin offering for the people and slew it. You see, Aaron first needed to prepare himself before he was able to have effective ministry to others. So fellow pastors, teachers, parents, mentors, whoever you are, this affects us. We need to purify our lives if we expect to be effective in reaching out to others, however it is. When there is tension in my home, it's a reminder to me to take a look at myself and ask, am I failing in some way that allows this tension to be in my home? I don't think it's fair for us as parents and whoever you are, as a mentor, a person of influence, to expect our children or whoever it is to rise above our own level of holiness and obedience and holy living. If you don't have a meaningful prayer life, don't expect to teach meaningful prayer to your children. If you aren't experiencing personal purity, don't expect to influence others towards personal purity. And if sports or earning money or having a good time in life is more important to me than missions and serving God, I think that's going to be reflected in my children. You want to see the values of a parent? Look at his children. See what their values are. Personal consecration is necessary for effective ministry. And finally, personal consecration to holiness will reveal God's glory to those around us. Uh, near the end of this episode here, as, as Moses was dedicating Aaron and his sons to the priesthood and to their holy work, chapter 9, verse 23, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto the people. If I am consecrated to God in living a life of holiness, God's glory is going to shine on those around us through that consecration. When you are the person that God wants you to be, when you're living the life that God wants you to live, when you're exemplifying the holiness that God wants to show forth through you, his glory will not be hidden. It will not be contained. It will shine forth like fire that falls from heaven. Verse 24, there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. So personal consecration in holiness will reflect God's glory. And I want to emphasize it will reflect God's glory. There's nothing about personal holiness that is designed to emphasize your glory or designed to glorify you. It is God's glory. Well, let's move on to look at the second historical account that happened in the book of Exodus. And that follows immediately after here in chapter 10, the offering of strange fire. Two of Aaron's sons, and apparently this was shortly after they were dedicated along with Aaron, shortly after that, 
Chapter 10, verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, it's not exactly clear to me just what the offense was here in this case. Different people have different ideas. Um, at any rate, I think it was clear at that moment what the offense was. I think they knew what the offense was. Some think that Nadab and Abihu wrongly took on the work of Aaron, who was designated as the high priest. These being priests took on the work that belonged to their father, the high priest. Uh, there's, there's speculation that perhaps they took this fire into the Holy of Holies, which of course ends in death if you enter the Holy of Holies at the wrong time or in the wrong way. They may have offered it at the wrong time. Only on the Day of Atonement could anyone enter the most holy place. Or it could be that they did not properly prepare themselves before a priest went into, into the tabernacle. He had to go through the, the procedures of preparing himself in holiness. And perhaps they did not do this. Uh, perhaps the fire was not the fire from the altar. And even if we read on to the end of this account, or, or a little bit later in this account, there's even the possibility that they performed this service while they were under the influence of alcohol. In verses 9 and 10, just right along with this account, the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever. And then it goes on to, uh, to conclude that situation. So I'm not sure exactly what the offense was here. But at any rate, I think they knew what the offense was, and I think there are some lessons that we can learn. Number one, the price of disobedience is high. When God says something, it matters. Now, we may say, yeah, but we're living in a different age. We're living in a time period. We're living in the day of grace, and that is all true. But the fact remains, we are accountable before God, and we will be accountable before God, and we will stand before God. The price of disobedience is high. Another lesson, God's call is not something to be trifled with. Verse 3, God said, This is it. Or Moses said to Aaron, but the words of God, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. That was God's call for his people. That's not something to be trifled with. Another lesson, careless attitudes matter. 
Sometimes we just have this carefree attitude. It doesn't really matter. You know, anything goes. Careless attitudes matter. And wrong motives matter. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of a person are clean in his own sight, but the Lord examines the motives. You see, I can come up with a defense for anything I do. We're pretty good at defending ourselves. But God sees straight through that to our motives, and that's what he examines. Well, there's a third historical event that takes place in the book of Leviticus, and that's found in chapter 24. And uh, I'll just flip to that here quickly. Chapter 24, verse 10, it says, A son of an Israelitish, an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and the son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And here's the offense. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him on to Moses. And verse 12, they put him in, in prison, in ward, that the mind of the Lord might be showed. And the Lord spake unto Moses, verse 14, Bring him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their heads upon, lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. So again, there are details here that we do not know. This man had an Israelite mother and had an Egyptian father. Were they married? We don't know. Was he the result of rape? Perhaps. Was he looked down on in society because of his mixed ancestry? Possibly. Was resentment building up within him until he reached a breaking point and blasphemed God and cursed? We don't know all those things. We don't know exactly what all took place before this. But there are some things that we do know. Number one, we are responsible for our actions. It doesn't matter if you say, well, I've had a disadvantaged background. I've had this hardship. I've had that hardship. I don't have it as easy as you do, so you can't expect as much of me. We are responsible for our actions. <coughs> we can make excuses, but those excuses won't save us. We can try to cover our tracks, but that won't hide us. We can even point out the good things in our lives. Yeah, but do you know about this and this and this? Notice the good things in his life. His mother's name, in verse 11, was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. So his mother had a good ancestry. We can even point out all the good in our lives, but that doesn't make up for the evil. We will need to answer for what we do, whether it was a deliberate action or an impulsive reaction. We don't know which it was here. We are responsible. Number two, sin must be dealt with. We may not allow the infiltration of evil to penetrate our lives. This man blasphemed God, he cursed God, and it was dealt with immediately. Sin needs to be dealt with. If we accept evil in our lives, it will only spread. And thirdly, God will protect his name. You cannot stand up against God 
and win. It's guaranteed. God will protect his name. Well, I'll move on to one final main point here. I'd like to look at three emphases in the book of Leviticus. And there's a number of themes that you can pick out. One of them is um, holiness, reflecting God in a life of holiness. Some people call um, or refer to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, as the theme verse of Leviticus. It says, Ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. Holiness unto the Lord. The word holy or holiness is mentioned more than 80 times in this book, in the 26 or 27 chapters of the book. Okay, how many chapters? 27. Holiness is mentioned more than 80 times. And holiness was not just for the Levites. It's for God's people. I mentioned the book of Leviticus is often quoted in the New Testament. Peter quotes it in chapter 1. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Holiness is a theme in this book. We are called to worship God in holiness. Now, I remind you of the setting. The children of Israel had just come out of Egypt. They were camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And at the end of the book of Exodus, one of the last things we read about in Exodus, God set up the tabernacle. And then immediately following that, he goes on to explain how we should worship. He sets up the rules for worship. So in Exodus, he showed them where to worship. In Leviticus, how to worship. There are people today that say, you know, all that matters is that you come out of Egypt. You come into the church. From there on out, you live a life of freedom. Forget the rules, forget the standards, forget the agreements, whatever you call them. They're not necessary. But don't forget, these are the words of God himself. He prescribed very specific methods of worship. And I think that applies for us today. Our attitudes matter. Think of Nadab and Abihu, who offered the unholy fire. What was their problem? I think it was basically careless attitudes. You know, it doesn't matter how we do it. We can just do it our way. We don't need to do it God's way. They paid, paid dearly for that. Holiness and worship is important. Holiness is something that is beautiful. I don't know what you think of the word, or what you think of when you think of the word holiness. Sometimes word like that, words like that kind of have a negative connotation in our minds. I heard someone this week say, um, when you think of holiness, you might think of someone that was weaned on a dill pickle and soaked in embalming fluid. You know, they're just preserved in this dead state. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is life. It's beauty. It's living. The, the term, the beauty of holiness, is referred to many times, or numerous times, throughout the Bible. And it will affect every area of our lives. Looks like the projector has a mind of its own. So... Three emphases in Leviticus. Number one, 
reflecting God in a life of holiness. Number two, reconciliation through a life of sacrifice. The first several chapters describe various types of sacrifice and how they should be done. I mentioned holiness is mentioned 80 times. Blood is mentioned more than 80 times. Atonement is mentioned more than 40 times. And this all points forward to Christ. And then the third emphasis is remembering God in holidays and feasts. And the last several chapters deal quite heavily with this. Now these two points here on sacrifice and the feasts, uh, for myself, I'm not yet done studying the book of Leviticus. I think there's a lot of interesting things there that I want to spend some more time studying uh, some of these things, the sacrifices and the feasts, um, whether or not they will turn into another sermon, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see for that. But let's remember these three emphases in this book. Holiness. This reflecting God's holiness in our lives. Reconciliation through sacrifice and remembering God through the holidays and feasts. There's this concept that Leviticus is a boring book. A lot of people look at the book of Revelation and either look at it in one of two ways. Some of them look at it as a confusing book. Some of them look at it, some of us look at it as an exciting book. Revelation is a book filled with excitement. And several years ago, or some time back, I remember just spending some time studying the book of Revelation and the theme that probably stood out to me more than any others in the book of Revelation was the holiness of God. So the book of Revelation and the book of Leviticus have something in common, holiness. The one focuses on the holiness of God and the other focuses on us reflecting the holiness of God so that we are prepared to meet God. I'd like to close with a verse from 1 Peter 1, 16 and 17, which is uh, pretty much a quote from the book of Leviticus as a challenge for each one of us today. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy, saith our Lord God. Let's kneel for prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are a holy God. If it weren't for your holiness, we would be without hope. But because of your holiness, uh, you want to share that holiness with us, and you want to prepare us to stand before you in all your holiness. Lord, I just pray that you would impress upon each of us here this morning the importance and the significance of of allowing your holiness to permeate our lives and affect every aspect of our lives so that that holiness could be seen in the world around us as they look at our life and testimony. And Lord, our desire is that this would be for your glory, that the glory of your holiness would just shine forth and bring glory and exalt your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.